to get three or four levels deeper than what a lot of your contemporaries settle for. And so with the number of the podcasts that I've seen, especially with uh, Eric's, you tend to go two or three levels deeper. If you remember at one point in time, he's tearing up uh, yeah. a little bit. And that's because you search, as I interpret it, for the authentic truth, not necessarily the convenient one. And so I'm really looking forward to this because I find that my ability to play superficial is terrible. My ability to get deep, to get vulnerable, to get transparent and authentic is what I think has served me well. And I'm hoping that in the context of our conversation, wherever it goes, we find uh, common ground well below the watermark of a lot of conversations, both personal and professional, but especially in the context of you and I literally meeting for the first time right now. I really appreciate that. It's very, very kind of you, very sincere thing to say. Um, Eric's one of my favorite people. We've become really good friends, particularly because it isn't a surface level conversation. And there are, you know, there's been some pretty amazing things that have happened. We've got about a little over 200 episodes in editing right now. Um, and so like, I think I've only published 53 and really the last, you know, eight or 10 have been me really finally getting my groove and starting to take this thing, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Be, becoming a little bit more what I want it to become. And that's why I don't like scripted anything. I mean, I'll do a little bit of research, but I just want to have a conversation and the conversation goes where it's supposed to go. And sometimes, you know, I, I get people that want to be on the show that, you know, it's cool, but you know, they're just, a lot of that stuff is superficial. It's just like, well, this is the thing and this is how you become successful. These are the things. And it's like they practice this pitch. And I'm like, dude, let's just dive into it. Let's talk. Let's have a real talk, you know? Yep. I, I find the authentic conversations yield the greatest results, not just in the context of you and I speaking to one another, but to whatever audience you have. You know, everyone, everyone can sniff out the bullshit of canned and scripted. It's, yep. a, it's a much more interesting conversation for us. And then I believe for your audience, if we tend to take it uh, down the road, less traveled. Absolutely. I, I appreciate it. Do, do you like to go by Christopher or Chris? Chris is fine. Uh, um, my mother calls me Christopher when she's pissed off at me. And she's been doing that shit since I was about three. <laughs> uh, whatever. That's funny. Um, well, I think... First of all, how you started this conversation really broke the ice and gave me a, you know, an insight to your authenticity, which makes me very excited to have this conversation. So I, let's just start with, um, you know, something I'm always curious. I've always found that the most passionate, you know, uh, well-rounded philosophical thinking type people who have found tremendous financial success. I stick with financial success because I use it as like a median or, or like a starting point because that's where everybody strives, right? Because it's like, well, you're always worried about money until you have it. And then once you have the money, then you can start working on the other things typically because it's like you work on the thing that you're, you know, you're in survival mode. So if you have no money to put food on the table or to pay your light bill or your rent or your mortgage, then those are the things that are 
that you're worried about constantly because nothing else matters at that point. Sure. You know, it's after you've, you've, it's after you've, uh, achieved, you know, let's say the, the, the status quo or the, or the baseline that you can start looking at other things, other facets, belief systems, habits, um, you know, philosophy, who you are and trying to get into, get into an understanding of who you really are. Were you always a, um, <clears throat> a purpose-driven individual or like what, what were you like, I guess, as a child in, in the sense of, did you always pursue, did you always feel like you were this odd kid out or were you very extroverted? You get along, you had a lot of friendships or were you the type of person that was locked in the room, just reading or, you know, thinking about things and overanalyzing things. Like I, I just, I'm curious, like how you were as a kid. <clears throat> Thank you, Mo. Um, yeah. So, uh, uh, probably none of the above in full transparency. Uh, yeah. I was, uh, I was a puppet on a string, uh, for about the first 13 years of my life. In so Who was a puppeteer? Uh, um, yeah, you were getting there. So right. uh, I had three and really only three focuses in my life. Uh, first one is I was a um, reasonably accomplished uh, junior tennis player. Wow. Played an insane amount of tennis uh, and was usually on a tennis court at uh, 6 a.m. in the mornings, most mornings. Uh, I also, uh, through my parents, was heavily involved in church. So I would go to church five, six times a week. Uh, and then my parents were adamant about uh, us being the best students that we could be. So I was uh, conditionalized by behavior. Uh, I was conditionalized by mindset. Uh, and I was definitely conditionalized by love to focus on performance around tennis school and um uh religion um the good news and the bad news right so all of these activities have a have a light side and a dark side the light side of it is i was uh taught an insane work ethic as a young kid that has carried me through to today i was also uh taught um unbeknownst to me the importance of resilience and grit, which are words that I've heard on a number of your podcasts that I've had the privilege of listening to, for sure, Thank you. for sure, for sure. Those are all those are all great things, and I, I was taught how to be competitive. All all the stuff you would expect. Yeah. The challenge of that is really a few things. Number one, uh, I did not have much access to social, friend, normal kind of kid growing up stuff. And so I had a very uh, tumultuous childhood in so much as I rebelled strongly against what I was being told to do versus what I wanted to do. And what that led to was a pretty uh, challenging relationship that I had with my very type A, heat sick and highly competitive father. Uh, my father uh, also uh, would typically have a box of wine for dinner uh and wow. i don't know if you're old enough to remember the days of the box or the big jugs oh of, yeah of wine 
Uh, and uh, at times, uh, depending upon what was going on in my world, uh, his personality would shift. And from uh, pretty extreme uh, abuse to unbelievable, unyielding, dying appreciation and love, the spectrum was wide in terms of rolling the dice and who, who, who might be there to tuck me in at bed at night. Um, what it did uh, is it gave me some skills that literally to this day, I attribute a tremendous amount of my success towards. On the other hand, it gave me a complete lack of self-identity in terms of ultimately who I wanted to be, how I wanted to show up, how I wanted to be a parent when I grew up. Uh, and so there was a lot of collateral damage along with a fair amount of performance that took me into my high school years. And so that collateral damage, would you say hindered your process leading up to becoming an adult like for instance yeah totally you know true. in relationships women friendships what have you yeah it uh it created a few things uh and, and kind of dialing this this down to an even deeper level so when i was uh 13 years old my uh, parents decided to send me to military school uh oh, which is more or less the uh the equivalent of a, of a prison uh, yeah. or high school uh, and, you know, academically excelled highest ranked male in my class, uh, uh, athletically excelled 46 and 0 uh, record for tennis. But uh, I felt uh, a tremendous sense of abandonment, of uh, rage. Uh, I went to a as I said, a military school. And so we had this thing called the showers where you would go down to the showers at two or 3 a.m. in the morning because the, the senior classmates would grab you, tap you on the shoulder and make you go down. And you would be told to fight whoever was across the uh, shower from you. And it, it could be your best friend or your worst enemy. Made no difference. And if you didn't, you would get what was called a pillow party uh, by the upperclassmen, which is the last thing you wanted. And so I developed an intense sense of rage, fair amount of self-loathing, uh, some, as I said, some pretty strong abandonment issues that if not but for the grace of some interesting and kind of weird circumstances in college, I would probably have followed the same path that I had been nurtured and taught as a child by my dad in terms of my own development. Thankfully, there was a few interesting pivot points that caused me to go in a very different direction, one of which has me very much respecting, appreciating, loving, and valuing the human being, the man, the father, the son, the brother that I am today. That's beautiful, ma'am. I, I got to ask, I just want to sidestep a little bit. Um, first of all, you seem like such a, such a sincere human. A lot of people... You know, even me for a long time, like, <clears throat> I thought I was a good person. But really, I was just judging people. And I was judging people because I had this lens where <clears throat> I thought that anybody above me was better than me and everybody below me was worse off. And not in a, like a, you know, hierarchy of, you know, money or wealth or class. It was more of just... I don't even know how to, how to describe it. So to be able to see real sincerity that came from what sounds like a lot of pain 
I want to ask, I know things were different, you know, like I was raised differently. You know, the mother was a nurturer, the father was the disciplinarian. And, you know, in my culture, it was very much the disciplinarian. And uh, so I can sympathize, but it was always filled with love. Like that was the thing. Like there was always a lot of love in, in our family. It just, it wasn't always reciprocated or perceived the way that I wanted it to. And so that made me, you know, be very closed off emotionally for majority of my life. So I, I wanted to ask, like, what was your mother's role throughout this process? You being sent to military school, what was your relationship with her? How is that relationship now if she is still with us? And um, like, did that affect you more so or less so than your father's puppeteering? So uh, it was a it was a coordinated attack uh, oh. as a child, and so there wasn't a safe place to go. No uh, siblings. I have two younger siblings, and and let me let me be, before I go down this this dark trail, let me give you the, let me give you the end of the story. Okay, Everything worked out beautifully. My father passed in two thousand eight from pancreatic cancer. And he absolutely, he and I had a great relationship and there was respect, there was love, there was care. It took us a while to get there. I have a mother who just turned 83 last week. She, Happy birthday. Yeah, oh, she's phenomenal. She acts like she's 60. She wants to date guys that are my age, which is totally uncomfortable <laughs> to me. And, uh, and she's doing great. I have two younger brothers, one who's 20 months younger than me, one that's 12 years younger than me. And the greatest gift that my parents gave through everything that I've said is the closeness that I have with my family, my two brothers, my daughter, my uh, two nieces, my nephew. We are insanely close. And ultimately, everything that I'm talking about right now, because we, we agreed to kind of go into the deep in the pool early, this all works out. And the, there is both a blessing and a curse in the journey that got us here. And thankfully, thankfully, it's all worked out. But at no point in time other than the last maybe 15, 20 years, was it a clear path to that outcome? Mm -hmm. Rather, it was a constant journey, a constant challenge, and a number of roadblocks, both from my parents, from myself, that uh, took us on this serpentine path to ultimately get us to where we are today. And not only was my father at peace with me and my brothers when he passed, we were at peace with him. We loved him tremendously. He loved us. You know, as you well know, everyone in this world is going through their own stuff. Everybody has their own shit. And one of the greatest gifts from what I've just kind of laid on you and your audience is that there is a tremendous, there is a tremendous power in grace, in forgiveness, in kindness, in compassion and acceptance. And through a lot of firsthand pain, I have come to be a better man, a better father, a better son, a better brother, a better human being through a lot of adversity where I constantly look to try to figure out, okay, what's the silver lining on this? How can I learn? How can I grow? And respectfully, if I'm going to go through 
all of this shit, I might as well make the best out of it. So how can I turn this around? How can I be a better person? And how can somewhere down the road later on, I actually thank this suffering, these challenges, this pain in such a way that I am better equipped, not only for myself, but for the people who I care about and love to deal with this world that's thrown at me day in and day out. That's beautifully said, man. Um, you said something that I really, um, that really stuck to me, which was you're going through this pain, this suffering. Why not try to find and figure out to, to, to make it the best thing ever and, and, and find essentially happiness and, and love and, and all the things that, that the human condition I think is truly striving for yet we lie to ourselves and, and create these fallacies that, that, you know, that if eventually become part of our mantra and part of our identity. And, and that's just who we are rather than, than, you know, not just avoiding the affliction, but actually taking it in, understanding, questioning why, like you could have went the other way. Like you could have easily went the other way. And it would have been actually easier to become resentful and hard and racial right? and yeah. bitter and yep. victimized. Yep. Right. Yep. And, and it, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. And, and, and I've, I've digested it a few different ways. There's a, there's a humorous side, uh, to this, this quick story. So I graduated from, uh, high school, academically, very successful, athletic, very successful, and I was on my way to the University of Texas to uh, get a full ride scholarship to join the University of Texas te uh, tennis team. And mm -hmm. that was my path. And uh, my relationship was estranged with both of my parents at that point in time. And I realized that I, I had to kind of figure this out on my own. I come down to UT and uh, because the uh, tennis scouts weren't going up as far north as I was in uh, New York, um, I had to uh, uh, participate in what's called the walk-on tournament. You win the walk-on tournament, you get on the team, and they figure out the scholarship. I lost in three sets to the guy who won the walk-on tournament, wound up becoming one of my best friends. He got on the team. He didn't get a New York nickel for a scholarship. And outside of the first semester, my father sat me down in my room and said, they've paid enough. They've gone far enough. I can go to school. I can go get a job. I can do whatever I want to, except I can't go home. And probably no different than you from what I'm sensing, uh, you know that fear is a phenomenal motivator to get things done. And so I literally started, two things happened. I started my first company and found my entrepreneurial bent really at a, as, a, as, a, as a thriving, uh, super fearful 17-year-old in uh, college. And then wow. the second thing I did because I was looking at the uh, University of Texas at Austin uh, student services, student services bill. I saw that the student counseling services had a charge of 0, 0.00. So it was free. And it happened to be adjacent to the Apple store that I had been looking in at the window because the Apple Mac was out. It's all fantastic. And I couldn't afford that for all the money in China. So uh, pretty funny story. So I roll into the University of Texas student uh, counseling uh, services building and there's a young woman behind the, the desk. And I say, I'm, I'm here to figure out what free services I can get from the University of Texas Student Counseling. She's like, well, you got to fill out this form. And there's this one piece, Mo, where they talk about 
you know, what are the issues that you want to address? What the what are the challenges you have? And, you know, from want to hit the kid in my marketing class, uh, suicidal thoughts, self-losing thoughts, you know, have uh, thought about dropping a car off a cliff, yada, yada, yada. There were probably like six or eight spots available on the form itself. And I just started writing down the right-hand side of the paper and just identifying all the things that were raging through my through my mind and my, my being at that time. For the job application? For the, why are you going to student counseling? So oh, it's a, oh like got, it, got it. Counseling services uh, play. And so I, I wrote probably, I don't know, 15 things, 10 things down. Uh, hand it to the woman. She looks at the form, looks at me, looks at the form. And she goes, I'll be right back. Leaves, comes back with a group of about six or seven folks. And uh, she's like, will you please walk us all through what's going on? Uh, with you. And so I told him what was going on with me. And that started a journey. I was 18 years old when I, I went and did this that had me in pretty intense counseling two or three times a week for about three years. And with all due respect to the phenomenal education that I got from the University of Texas at Austin, where I really pivoted wasn't in my academic pursuits. It was in the psychological uh, work that I did that unraveled all of these negative perceptions I had of myself and really allowed me to like myself, enjoy myself, understand where a lot of this rage came from, be able to compartmentalize or release it. And as a result, I left college a diametrically different person than I walked into it. And that grace and that providence of having my uh, parents cut me off is the only reason, very much so to your point, that I didn't go down another path that would have had me in a very different place today. But didn't you already feel like you were already cut off like from previously, like when they shipped you to oh, military I, I, school? I felt totally cut off, but I couldn't do anything about it. Yeah. Whereas when I came into college, I get, I wanted to redefine myself on my own terms. You know, I graduated, it was a primarily boys school, graduated a virgin, you know, I was uh, uh, I was of the era where wearing a Michael Jackson's white glove I thought was cool. My wardrobe was terrible. I had no social skills uh, to speak of. Uh, I wasn't dressed well, and uh, women were pretty alien to me as yeah. a species. And so, coming to college and University of Texas at that point in time was recognized as one of the the best Playboy ranked at the number one party school in the United States. You know, I was hoping not just to get an education. Uh, I wanted to grow as a person. I wanted to lose a lot of the things I didn't like about myself. I was desperately hoping at some point in time there would come an opportunity for me to get laid. All of the things that a college kid rolling into college wants to do, but I didn't have a clue as to how I was going to get there. That's part of the fun, isn't it? Yeah, it's part of the fun and it's part of the challenge. And, and I felt that when I rolled into college, I had a number of strikes against me in terms of the way I was showing up. And so the biggest challenge and the biggest gift was the ability for me to really find and like myself over the course of those four years. And then from there, everything else kind of followed. I, um, I also wonder like, <clears throat> what makes people battle through this 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 resilience or or this not even resilience they battle through this 
this blockade, whether it be fear or paralyzing fear or the unknown and to, to develop enough discipline to create the habits to build the resilience so that you have that thick skin, you're able to muster more and you're able to take on more. I always look at resilience and discipline synergistically like I do, you know, exercise. So I, I train a lot in powerlifting and what have you. And the thing that I, I love about strength training in general is that it's based on periodization. Over time, if you just lift a little bit more and then a little bit more the next time and you go a little bit harder the next time, just small increments, over time, you've become substantially, substantially stronger, right? So you may have started with a hundred pound bench press and in, you know, 12 months time, now you're at a 245 pound bench press. That's 145 pound strength difference in a matter of 12 months. So in life, if you were to able to accomplish something like that, whatever that goal may be, whether it be financial, you know, relationship, what doesn't matter, you know, life journey. I think that over time it, it, you can, you can maximize those results. And then as you become more proficient and more resilient, you're able to 2X and 3X and 4X. And I'm not just speaking like from, from a financial or business or entrepreneurial career driven perspective. I'm talking about like you as a person, sure. like if you can become more resilient, you're able to handle things a lot better. And the more that you're able to do that, the more efficient you become, the more efficient you become, I don't want to say it, it becomes easier, but it's like, you kind of like, you can handle it, you know? And there's a the thing that Tony Robbins says, and I'm not like the biggest advocate of Tony Robbins only because I just feel like a lot of the stuff is very systemic and template and if that's sure. even a word. But the one thing that he said <clears throat> that has kind of stuck with me lately, he asked the question, what if everything was a gift? And I thought that was interesting. He said, what if everything was a gift, the car crash, the neglect, the, the, the loss, the fear, you know, the, you know, the, the, the accident that you had, the, the business that went under the sickness, the homelessness, like what if all of that was a gift and you were to frame your perspective that everything that has happened to you is a gift, how would you live your life? How would you go on? Like, what would your day to day look like? What would your, what would your choices be? Sure. What would the things what would the things that used to grant you fear now grant you permission? You know, it's just like, it's really interesting because I feel like you kind of did all of that and you somehow figured it out. <clears throat> and it breaks my heart when I see people not figuring it out or figuring out way too late in life. Not to say that that's not a great thing. I still better late than never, right? Like if you figure it out and you're 80 years old, Hey, you know what? You could still fucking be amazing. But like, if you look at what's happening today, man, like, look at, look at our society. Like, another one of my favorite quotes, which, which is, um, and I don't know who said it, but uh, you know, uh, 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 tough times create strong men, strong men create uh, easy times and easy times create weak men. And I believe that we're in a time right now where it is, it is weak men in tough times. And, and that could be generated as people, whatever. It's like, I've had so many conversations with people, Joe Desenia being one of them, where like, we just need another great depression. We need something to stimulate everybody's senses because everyone as a society has become too soft. And I don't mean like 
soft in the sense of, uh, you know, you're a little girl, soft in the sense that you just don't have any resilience and you're so bored that you're creating problems out of thin air. And that's, that's how I look at it right now as, as a society. Whereas you, you went through hardship, you went through, you know, inner battles and all this stuff. And you just figured out, you knew that at some point, like you were just going to make the best of it. And you were going to figure out how you can live the most fantastic life. What made you think that in the first place? Like what went on in your head? Like, why were you wired that way? Yeah, like, that's yeah. what I'm trying to figure out. Like in general, not just you specifically, like what, what makes people make these choices and what makes people not make these choices in life? Yeah, you're not going to like this answer and that's okay. That's uh, all right. You, you're giving me, you're giving me credit that I don't deserve. Uh, I didn't know what I was doing at the time. I just knew there was something more to but my that's life. What I'm, but that's what I'm the saying. Path, the path that I was going. And yeah. what uh, I, I heard this framed, uh, I heard this framed two ways, both of which are relevant to this conversation. The first way I heard what I'm about to talk about framed was by a guy named David Brooks. He wrote a book called The Second Mountain. You, I'm sure you know who he yep. is. There's a five minute and two TED Talk video that may be the best five minutes I've ever watched uh, on YouTube. And his uh, video, as you probably know, is are you living for your resume or your eulogy? And the reality yep. is that all of us want to live for our eulogy, all the virtues, all the morals, all the ethics, all the character, all the, all the impact that we create in this world. Yet the reality is, is that most of us and society default to the lowest common denominator, which is living for our resume, living for success. I watched that video maybe 10 years ago, and it changed the way that I ran one of the mastermind groups that I was running back then, an organization called Tiger 21 in Texas. And then um, not so long ago, I heard this really interesting uh, allegory that, uh, that hit me like a freight train. And the allegory is this. It's 50, 75 years from now. Uh, you are on your deathbed. You're in a hospital. All of yep. the people that you love are wrapped around you. And uh, visiting hours are over. And so they give their hugs. They give their kisses. And they walk out the door. You know that your end is near. And right before you go somebody walks in the room you're not sure who it is but within a second or two you realize it's you and it's the optimal version of you and that optimal version needs to have one last chat with you before you leave this world and the question is will that chat be a living heaven or a living mm -hmm. hell and as you well know there is so much roll of the dice in terms of the success that we have, the wealth yeah. that we have, the accomplishments that we have, you know, where you're born, how you're educated, who your parents were, the DNA that makes you up, all of that stuff, you have nothing whatsoever to do with, yet it has a very material impact on who you are and what you've accomplished. What I believe is the ultimate judge and um, measure of a man or woman is not the success that they've had but it's rather the significance that they've given driven off of values character traits morals and ethics and regardless of whether or not you're a prince or a pauper to the extent that that conversation with that optimal version of you has alignment as it relates to what's most important in life family philanthropy relationships helping others 
those are the things that ultimately not only do you want to be recognized for in terms of your eulogy, but those are ultimately the things that define the value and legacy by which you leave this world. And regardless if I was homeless or I was a president or anything in between, if I aligned with that optimal version of me, then my last chat would be a living heaven. If not, if I fell short of the mark on those significant elements, then my last chat would be a living hell. And that analogy has stuck with me and I've actually used it many times with the groups that I run now because I believe it's too easy to get caught on the hedonic treadmill of living for the resume and living for the accolades and the accomplishment and the stuff that keeps us at a more superficial level. I think not only is it more meaningful, but I think you are a lot freer as a human being if you live with an understanding and a ability to not only be authentic in communicating your gifts as well as your flaws, but then in constantly working on yourself, serve as a beacon for others to do the same. Dude, I can talk to you. I could literally talk to you for days on that. You know, Mo, I'm a, I'm a little bit of an empath and that sounds weird, but uh, I, sense, I sense some real power inside of you in the conversations and the podcasts that I've watched. And I'll tell you, I can't, I can't remember a time I've been this excited to get on a podcast with someone because I knew, and I, I don't know if you saw it. I was on, I was waiting for you 15 minutes before this call began. Uh, I saw, yeah, we were wrapping up another call. I'll try to get on as quickly as I yep. could. And I'm like, man, I will, I am all in on this guy, even though he has no idea of who I am. I, I so appreciate that, man. That's so nice of you. I, uh, I always enjoy these kind of conversations and it, unfortunately, like it only happens, like you're the second guy I've had a conversation like this with, you know, to really be able to dive deep. And, and I've always been curious, really. And I don't think, I don't think like you saying, like you're an empath is kind of weird. I don't find that weird at all. I, I believe, you know, well, now it's, you know, it's proven by science that we're, we're made up out of energy and energy is circling us and surrounding us. And like, you can feel the air is off when you're surrounded by negative energy. Sure. Like, sure. this is why I've always disliked going to big events where I knew that there was a group of people that I personally didn't like, whether it be their values, how they have treated me in the past or my family or someone I cared about. I just, and my wife always says like, you know, you be nice, be nice. And like, at first I used to find it insulting. Now I think what she's trying to say is like, I know it's hard for you, but you, you know, try to be, try to like, not let your emotions, you know, rile you up essentially, because I just, I don't like surrounding myself with that kind of, I don't even want to say toxic, but it is like a negative energy and you feel it, man. And it, and, and like, it goes, it goes through you. And it's just like, it's like you just ate a bad steak, you know, or a rotten, or you had a glass of rotten milk. It just, it, it doesn't sit well. Um, so I've always been curious, like what, just real quick, without getting too far off a topic, but like, in your opinion, what, what is an empath? Like, what is the purpose and how do you know you're an empath? Like, is it something you just feel or like, I, I'm just yeah. at a loss? Forgive my I, ignorance. Yeah, I, I think I'm a trained one. Right. And so okay. I, I uh, shared with you and, and not by design, I, uh, in order to 
release a lot of the uh, issues and, and challenges that I had uh, from my childhood in college, I had to dig really, really deep. And I needed to emotionally understand the levers that were moving on at first an unconscious level, then rose to the consciousness. And what's interesting is the skills that I picked up going through counseling and desperately trying to fix myself in college are in no way, shape, or form the kind of special powers that I now bring to these different mastermind groups that I run today. So, you know, I learned when I, when I first uh, started working for Tiger 21, there were about 25 of us. Uh, and in the ranking system, I was dead last. Uh, and I was uh, the youngest. I was also the least qualified as most of these uh, uh, men and women that were called chairs, facilitators, leaders of these different markets. They were college professors. They were financial planners. They were state lawyers. They were all super educated and super vested and uh, competent, especially around financial related topics. And the organization uh, that I joined was very much focused in deal flow, in wealth accumulation, in wealth building, and in wealth preservation. And they did a fantastic job at it, bar none. Wow. I realized that if I were to play that game, and if I needed to be measured on my financial acumen and deal flow access and ability to present investment opportunities, uh, opportunities to this group, I was going to get fired within six months to a year. You're on the outside. So had to change the playing field. I'm not playing that game because I'm going to get my ass kicked. So I'm like, huh. If you think about it, all of us, whether we recognize it or not, are on a journey of significance. Mm -hmm. We opened not talking about your business. We opened talking about your wife and your kids. I know just based on the limited conversation we've had, you are family centric. And I bet you would define yourself as a father and a husband long before we would talk about investments, wealth, podcasts, celebrityness, whatever the case may be. Got it. All of us are on that journey, that journey of significance. All of us struggle with it. Maybe it's relationships. You know, you, you mentioned the fact that you work out. And by the way, uh, that Adidas outfit, I think is your like signature outfit. Because I think I like the three or four different videos that I watched you were in. The I've, I've got, outfit. I've got it in every color and multiple shades. And this particular Navy, I've got three sets of them. That's fantastic, man. It's great. I, I, I just love them. They're, they're comfortable. They're light. I don't get too hot and they're just easy to throw on. My point is that you find significance, obviously, with your relationships. You yeah. obviously are focused around your health. I also believe that all of us, once we achieve a certain uh, escape of financial gravity in terms of wealth, all of mm -hmm. us have a responsibility to be philanthropic and to give back and to help those that are less fortunate than ourselves. All of us want to build a legacy. You want your children to sit well atop your shoulders in whatever life pursuits that they have. Happiness, success, significance, purpose, fulfillment, you know, uh, uh, living well, being good citizens, whatever the case may be. So I pivoted and I'm like, screw it. If I'm going out, I'm going out how I want to go out. We're going to focus on what I think are the most important things, not necessarily what I'm being scripted to deliver. And what's interesting is when I made that pivot, I think everyone kind of scratched their head for about 
four to six months and then everybody got it. And it was almost like a religious experience in terms of once they realized that I wasn't full of shit and that we were really going to double down on the relationships with their spouses, the relationships with their kids, their health, bringing in philanthropies that can talk about, you know, return on uh, investment as it relates to charities. Uh, if we could spend some time in places all across the world looking at the impact that our investments of these nonprofits would make, looking at how we could change the needle, not just of ourselves, but how interesting if I could offer you a value proposition that said, okay, Mo, you come play with me. This good's going to happen to you and you're going to be happy with it. What's interesting is it's even a better play if we can do something that will change the trajectory of your wife in terms of her happiness, her fulfillment, her satiation. And then brother, it's a MasterCard mic drop moment. If I do something that materially impacts the life of your children, because if you can see your children turn the dial in their lives in a positive, meaningful, scalable way, brother, who on the planet won't respond to something like that? And it's those kind of things that I did within this organization that literally moved me from dead last to number one, winning all kinds of awards. I have a I have a check uh, behind me here for 120 grand because most new members in the history of the company, all this stuff. But what it really did is it really set me up for success. And then once I left that organization, now running uh, multiple groups that very much embrace believe, subscribe, and act on exactly those things that I just talked about. And if it's with GoBundance, which is one of the groups that I run, or if it's with another group called R360, which is a global family office, in these groups, we have built a community, myself and a, and a number of just unbelievably great other folks, we have built tribes of these type of folks that are focused around doing this kind of good for themselves and leaving a legacy. And what uh, in no small way I am hoping to do through them and through the um, networks and the audiences and the reach that they have, you know, we're, we're desperately, as Steve Jobs likes to say, mm -hmm. uh, put a dent in the universe and lead this world a slightly better place than when we found it. That's so cool. I just, I love, first of all, thank you for sharing that. I absolutely love your by definition, the thing that was like the standard, you know, financial like numbers, like, you know, we got to make sure that we hit this X, Y, Z, what have you. And you completely flipped it on his head. The thing that I've always found interesting is that you can take, just take a thousand people. Now those thousand people, you can give them all the same exact skills. Now, some are going to be more talented. Some are going to be more intelligent. Some are going to be harder workers. Some are going to whatever, right? We all have our advantages and disadvantages and we make whatever. But let's say they all have the same skill sets to do the thing that needs to be due, which is causing the production for whatever, to move the needle forward. What I have found, and I'm sure you can attest to this, is that if this and this aren't in line, then... Like you could be the smartest person in the world. There's going to be a lot of broken parts that are going to inhibit you moving forward. Because I don't believe that if you're, if you're constantly in your own way, 
you can achieve the things that you want to achieve in life, whatever they may, whatever they may be. And that's why I dive so deep into philosophy and understanding of, of, I mean, this whole premise of the, of the show started because of, I was a big uh, Tim Ferriss fan and I read his book, Tools of Titans. And I thought it was really interesting. And I wanted to take it a step further. And I was like, okay, well, let's reverse engineer the psychology of achievement. And I just wanted to dive deep into really like the psyche and, and, and not just like numbers and, oh, this is the, because what most people talk about, man, is tactics, tactics and strategy. They don't actually go below that and try to uncover like what's really going on. Like what, how, why did you make that choice? What made you think that way? And I just like, you're the perfect example because you've achieved so much success on every, every single aspect of your life. And the fact that you were able to ping me that quickly was, it's, it's kind of a trip. I'm not going to lie, <laughs> but it's pretty cool um, that, that you're, that you're able to do that. <clears throat> be able to identify, especially like we're meeting over video and you, you just figured that out within the first five minutes. But yeah, I'm very family focused and that is my primary thing. Family is my number one, <clears throat> my number one um, importance. Everything else is secondary. But at the same time, I also understand that I have to invest in myself. Otherwise, the thing that I do for my family is going to suffer. Sure. You know, it's like you can't, you can't give from an empty cup kind of scenario. Um, and, and I did that for, for a while. And it was, it was starting to create a lot of resentment and anger and frustration. And, and it just, it blew up in my face. So anywho, going back to you. Um, no, this is great, man. And I, I, I so I, I, I value this, right? Cause yeah. here's, here's what's going on. You and I are resonating and the we're, we're just keep, we're, we're peeling that onion back as far as we can go. Here's, here's, let me, let me translate what I heard from you. Okay. Right? What I heard from you is that I get my significance from my family and there is nothing I wouldn't do in love, respect, and support of my wife and my kids to help develop them. And in achieving that goal, I need to be the ultimate and best version of myself so that I can in effect serve as a protector, serve as a beacon, serve as a mentor, and serve as a role model for my immediate family and by extension, everyone who falls into that bucket, be it your parents, your siblings, her parents, her siblings, whatever the case may be. And so the journey of significance you're on, not success, is I want to create a world in which my family is protected, in which my children respect, admire, and can model off of me. And I want to create a life that I can be proud of that I can have my children proud of and my future generation proud of, whether they know me or not. And I want to give them everything and more than what I had so that they can stand on the shoulders of not giants, but in the, in the case of your children, their dad. And here's the good news, man. That's universal. Most people, though, don't take the time to sit back and recognize that for what it is. And by default, myself included, I've made a ton of mistakes, not from malice or malintent, but from ignorance and from yeah. the, the 
treadmill that all of us get on, especially in our youth. We have kids when we're younger and we don't know any better. And so with this knowledge and with this learnings, not only do I know better, but shame on me if I don't, in the context of the um, mentoring, shepherding, supporting of these groups that I run, helping other people get to that realization as soon as they possibly can. That's fantastic. And so that's what you're doing now uh, full time or are you? That's the hope, right? I mean, it's a little aspirational and I'm not telling you I'm doing it as as great as I hope I could. So right now uh, I left uh, Tiger 21 in May of 2020. I uh, became the CEO of an organization called GoBundance. It has 720 men about, I'm sorry, 708 men, uh, about 120 or so women. Uh, and I run uh, that organization around what are six pillars. And if you've read the book, Tribe of Millionaires, you'll know that we really ripped the aperture open on focusing on more than just money in the context of helping these individuals achieve age-defying health, uh, authentic relationships, epic adventures, horizontal income, and the things that ultimately speak to the significance and not the success of Mm -hmm. these individuals. With the other organization that I run along with two wonderful partners, it's called R360. It is a global family office of 71 families. Average net wealth is uh, well north of about a few hundred million. And wow. they're at a later stage in life, but same rules apply. Uh, there's a book that serves more or less as the manifesto for R360 called More Than Money, written by my partner, Michael Cole. And he talks about the six forms of capital. The acronym is FISHES. It's financial, intellectual, social, human, emotional, and spiritual. And if you're not <coughs> at least aware of all six, much less firing on all six, you're not living the optimal life that all of us have both a right and obligation, and especially in the ultra high net wealth space, almost a responsibility to live, to then, as I mentioned, serve as a model by which others can follow. That's fantastic. What does R360 stand for? So uh, it's, it's um, uh, the name doesn't have a, a hard meeting. The idea was, especially in this ultra high net wealth <coughs> space, you want to look at people holistically. Yep. Take your time. Sorry. By the Go way, ahead. are your uh, are your daughters twins? Yeah. So I have a <clears throat> I have a twenty two year old, and then I have twins that are seven years old, almost eight. They'll be eight next week. Outstanding. Thing. So you got your hands full. All girls. All girls, man. So that means you're going to be working about five years past your grave date, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm already graying right now, man. I, I, I <laughs> dye my beard. I dye my beard. As, as you can tell, I don't walk away from that unscathed either, my friend. So um, the answer is I do it with all of these organizations. And it's more than a job. It's more than a profession. It's really a calling, a vocation. I had a, uh, I had a surreal experience in 1996 when I heard a gentleman named Bob Buford speak to an audience of about 150 CEOs. He wrote a book called Halftime, which is all about man's transition from success to significance. And Ooh. almost like a magnet, I felt compelled to meet this guy. I did, became a disciple of his for four years. <coughs> he taught me a lot of, the, of, of what I'm um, uh, throwing out to you. Uh, and my commitment to him when we first met is I couldn't offer him anything. 
But if I were to go down this path and find myself in a way to help mentor and work with other folks, I would pretty much do exactly to them what Bob Buford had done to me over three and a half, four years. And so this is, this is as much a passion, some call it a ministry, as I can imagine. And so it's not, it's not for ego. I lost that a long time ago. It's not for money. I do this because I believe this is truly where I need to be. And this is truly what ultimately will yield my fulfillment, satiation, happiness, joy, significance, uh, and uh, peace. That's beautiful. I think <clears throat> you mentioned you don't do it for money because this is something that always comes up. Like if you really value this, I've, I've had this question and I've known, you know, people of significance in their, in their field have had this question, which is, well, if you truly feel like you just want to do this to help others and serve others, then why do you charge for it? I'm like, well, this is my answer. And this is, this is, this is the answer that I've kind of accumulated. I'm like, and I think this is just part of our psychology. How many times have you done something or known someone that has been given free information and has taken it for granted? I feel like there's this, there's this commitment to, I don't want to say pay to play, but you have this like psychological commitment financially. Like if you were to invest $10,000 into something to get better, you're going to show up. But if you were just to sign on for this free thing, that was a weekly series that it was just as valuable as that 10,000 or $100,000 investment. So like psychologically, you're just going to like, eh, I'll do it tomorrow. Or it's not, it's not a, as of great importance, there's no urgency, there's no real commitment, you haven't actually committed to it. And so like, I find that to be the answer to a lot of those questions. Only because even even at the highest level, like, you know, eight figure, nine figure, 10 figure earners, like it doesn't matter. I just think that there is a there is a significance from when you invest into something, especially when you invest in yourself monetarily, that does something to you that gives that commitment. It's just like a transaction. Like when you were to purchase a house, you know, like if you want to lease a house, you know that you're basically just paying to borrow it. Whereas when you're going to, you know, get a loan from a bank, you still technically am you're, you're financing. So you are technically borrowing until you're able to pay it off or take that equity and put it somewhere else. It's really until you own something hundred percent where you paid cash, right? You send a wire and you actually own it. And then you own the land <clears throat> under it then you take this added responsibility and, and, and this commitment to knowing that you're going to do your absolute best to make sure that this is a livable home for you and your family or whatever. There's like this, this, this psychological trait, in my opinion, that, that, that happens when things like that take place. And so anybody that's listening right now that is curious about why would you invest so much money into bettering yourself at whatever stage in your life, it is the only thing that you should be doing. Because without that, and, and again, this is just an opinion, without that, then I just feel like you're running around in circles. And yes, you can figure out a lot of this stuff, I think, in, in on your own time and your own terms. But here's the thing. I'm 37. I'm going to be 38 in a few months. A I've been on this journey for, gosh, I don't know, 15, 20 years. And a lot of what I've accumulated just in the last three years has been the most significant. And that's just because I've I've been able to connect with people like yourself. And I feel like if you were able to expedite that process and find those mentors, it just 
like, don't you think it would just make things, first of all, run a lot smoothly, a lot more smoothly, and it'll give you a lot more time to, to, to live this version of yourself that you've been aspiring to become. And I don't think necessarily you ever just land there. I don't think you ever just, I think you discover the version you want to become. I don't think it's like, I think it's this ongoing thing. I think it's perpetual, right? Cause you're always getting better. You don't just arrive like, okay, I'm the guy I'm supposed to be done deal, you know? So, so some, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, there's some really important things that you said that I'd like to reaffirm. Please. Um, first thing that you said, and I uh, let me let me frame it in a way that my my silly mind works. Um, life is a must be present to win experience. Oh, and you have to be. I'm present. stealing that. Yeah, of course. You have. That's to be amazing. Present. You want to be a, you want to be a good dad, Mo. You better be present. You want to be a good husband, Mo? You better be present. You want to work on developing yourself? Show up. And one of the ways you show up is you make it, you put a cost associated with that. You know, you don't have to take your wife out for date night. And you know what? She may never say anything to you, but there's a cost to that. You may work so much that your children don't get to spend enough time directly nurturing and feeding their little souls that's that's what you're doing and as you get older you put some boundaries and some gates around that statement that i just made but it's all really the same thing you know we've spent uh, about an hour hour and five minutes on this call brother you have absolutely my 120 percent undivided attention right now because i feel like i am living my highest and most purposeful self and I'm kind of in the word is called flow. I'm kind of in the flow in terms of my interaction with you. And you have afforded me such a great gift in the way that I hoped for, but wasn't 100% in terms of how you would show up based on, based on what I saw. But man, you have so over-delivered on this call. I can't even begin to genuinely thank you enough because fully present, fully heard, fully validated, you know, you know, I don't know if I want to go run a mile after I get done with this call, scribble you a thank you email or send you a message saying whatever I can do to help, I'm in.